We've got too much to see. I'm like Ralphie. I've got all the presents around me at the on Christmas Day, and I'm just tearing through the paper trying to get to all of them because everyone is great. And then I toss it aside, and then I got another one. And I tear through that one, and I toss that one aside. And you keep opening presents, and that's what this time of year is all about. It's like we have too many great choices. Well, hey there. Welcome to Just To Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter for multiple decades, who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared Bignat, a reporter for the Sioux City Journal, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. For this episode, we're gonna cover Ridley Scott's second film of the year, House of Gucci, the new Netflix awards contender, Power of the Dog, and an angsty adaptation of a Tony award-winning one-act play, The Humans. First half pick section, we're gonna give you our Desert Island Christmas movies, which honestly end up being big surprises across the board to each of us. At the end of this episode, you're gonna get to hear Bruce's interview with Piper Parabo about her work on Yellowstone, as well as some other fun projects. You can find links to all the other movies that we talked about in the show notes, along with our social media info, etc., to see what we're up to and or contact us if you wanna sound off in our DMs. If you like the show, please tell your movie-loving pals and let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here it is. The show kicks off after this short pause. You go where your heart takes you, you know? True. Absolutely. You go where your heart takes you. But we've got Jared McNett coming in from his living room in Sioux City. To my office. Thank you very much. Apologies. <laughs> and uh, and we've got Bruce Miller, who is coming in from from his office, from at, the the, office. at the Sioux City Journal. And uh, we got me coming in from a little podcast studio at a bank, which is a long story, but we won't get into it. <laughs> Are you sure it's a bank? It might not be a bank. I'm looking right now. I got, I mean... I gave I gave a few hundred dollars to somebody. So <laughs> we're gonna find out a bigger story here that we know nothing about. Right? right? Yeah. <laughs> this is just the the most uh, elaborate con job in in Madison. <laughs> one one of these days, Chris, you're gonna walk in and there's it's gonna be completely empty except for one like cardboard box in like the corner of yep. one of the rooms. And for some reason, just a tumbleweed kind of like rolls through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> First National Latte and Podcast Studio will suddenly become a new thing. Well, this week we've got a only a couple of movies. It feels like there's a lot of buzz around stuff that isn't out yet or is only available in very limited release. Uh, and I mean, specifically, I'm very frustrated by the Licorice Pizza reviews and rankings and commentary and all of the Paul Thomas Anderson stuff. And I'm not going to be able to see it for the next three weeks. I mean, it comes out nationwide Christmas day and that's very frustrating, but what is out that we can talk about to lead things off is the power of the dog, which is out on Netflix. Uh, It's a Western starring Benedict Cumberbatch directed by Jane Campion and Benedict Cumberbatch is getting a whole lot of heat as far as 
best actor front runner. Um, you want to tell us a little more about it, Bruce? I know you've seen it. Truthfully, I don't know that he'll hold up. As much as they think it's kind of fun to see him playing this evil kind of ranch hand guy, um, the accent is off, to be honest with you. And it has a very Brokeback Mountain kind of undertone that um, was done better in Brokeback Mountain. But the, the visuals are great. Jane Campion sends a great job of directing it. Um, and there's that big kind of, there's a gotcha at the end where you go, oh, that's what this all means. That I think that is what keeps it alive. It'll definitely be a best picture nominee. It'll definitely be best actor. Probably Kirsten Dunst will get a best supporting actress nomination. Maybe the young boy who plays her son could get in there depending on how that all goes. But um, I was surprised because I heard so much about this and maybe that's a problem with anticipation is that you think it's gonna be something that it's not. And I don't know, I, you know, we've had several Westerns this year and I don't know that this necessarily is even as good as some of those Westerns. So the basic plot is you've got Jesse Plemons and Benedict Cumberbatch who are, they own this ranch. Who sleep in the same bed together, which is interesting. Yeah. And ton of money coming in from this ranch with, you know, cows, leather, beef, et cetera. And then Jesse Plemons is the button down business brother and Benedict Cumberbatch is the rough and tumble rawhide cowboy man. And Kristen Dunst is the widow of a suicide as, as she's described um, with a teenage son who is kind of picked up by Jesse Plemons and they get married and it's the relationship between the two brothers and the strain that comes into that relationship through Kristen Dunst and the, the son uh, played by Cody Smith McPhee. And he's, he's played as very kind of fey kind of, um, light and they all of course are macho men that make fun of him he makes paper flowers he wears white shoes he's thin and kind of um studious he's studying he wants to be a doctor one day and he studies you know uh, anatomy pictures and things like that and they all think he's just a wuss and so you can see that the mom is upset about that and what does she start doing she starts drinking and then that worries the boy that mom is drinking because this, this macho brother-in-law is causing trouble for her. And so the son kind of keeps an eye out, but he's got to get to school too. And then a friendship develops between the mean, awful Benedict Cumberbatch guy and this kind of thin, wispy kid. Yeah, and the directions that that goes is, is played really subtly. I don't necessarily know if I'd really, it's not like a twist. I don't want to prepare people for, um, you know, something that kind of pulls the rug out of them, out from under them too much. But the breadcrumb trail leading up to the ending is is laid in in a way that is you know you can't really see where it's going until you get there and then all of a sudden the the puzzle comes together completely um but 
Yeah. Gorgeous don't film. Underestimate, don't underestimate, uh, estimate anybody because it's that I think that was my my problem going in is I'm thinking, oh God, this doesn't look good for anybody. But you realize the smarter one um knew what he was doing. Yeah. I don't know if this is going to be the kind of movie that people are going to come back to very often, but it's 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 fantastic. It's it's certainly up there in the Netflix taking a big swing on awards bait. Yeah, and what's funny about this is that this is not one that they really have been pushing like they have some of the other ones. So that to me says, I wonder if they were a little nervous about it and they're just hoping that the art circuit kind of gives it a little a push that they, they feel it will help. But, um, you know, I love Jesse Plemons. I think he's just really, he's very good at underplaying and he just seems like kind of the, okay, I'm just going along with it kind of guy. And then you find out that the mom starts asking, where, where is my son? And he says, well, um, him and Philip kind of paired up and they're going out in the, in the you know, going, oh my God, what's going on now? What's going to happen to that kid? You know, so you see, he's kind of naive to what's the story that's happening. But I think he does know that his wife is drinking too much. It just as a, a, a capper on uh, uh, Power of the Dog, I will say you, you said that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, accent was a little bit shaky. Yeah. It's good to like see a, uh English person actually fail sometimes at playing American parts because too many times they just absolutely uh, own it and like run away with it. So I'm glad to hear somebody failing for once with uh, an accent. Pivoting from uh, one bad accent to another, then we can talk about House of Gucci. Perfect. Maurizio, Perfect transition. Maurizio. They all are overacting. I've never seen so much overacting in one picture. And I like Gaga. This is the, the second Ridley Scott film of the year behind The Last Duel, which we've uh, covered in the past. And um, yeah, you want to give us a little plot rundown, Jared? You got uh, the, uh, the Gucci family uh they're like rise and fall as people have probably seen from like the trailers and stuff like that it uh starts uh at the very beginning in the 90s and then kind of works backward uh from there and then ends again in the uh the 90s um and you know early on you get to lady gaga who like is the daughter of like a trucking guy who uh has a uh I wouldn't really say a meet cute because like her chemistry with Adam Driver's character at the beginning is like pretty not non-existent. So it's not exactly a meet cute, but she, she meets Adam Driver and like they slowly start uh, falling for each other. Although even kind of early on in the movie, you can tell she has uh, grander ambitions than just uh, dating or even marrying uh, this guy who's part of the, uh, the Gucci family. And then slowly from there, you get all the, uh, the wacky uh, Gucci uh, family members, including a, uh, Jeremy Irons is one of the Gucci's who looks like an absolute mummy uh, in the movie. Um, you get, he looks uh, like Prince Philip. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, I, I know that's what they're going for, but it was frightening nonetheless. Uh, you get Al Pacino as like the uh, the patriarch who is kind of just doing Al Pacino for parts of it, and Ooh, like, uh. boy, he should have just not even tried to do the accent because like it like. It's Al Pacino, man. Everyone knows that voice. So when he's trying to do an accent, it does not work. Um, and then you get uh, Jared Leto as the absolute just dumbass uh, brother who, like, 
thinks he's way smarter and way more creative than he is. And he's um, correct you. He's Al Pacino's son. Yes, 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 yes. He's Al Pacino's son. Yep. Um, Paulo. Paulo thinks he's very artistic and talented and creative. And the stuff he comes up with is dreadful and they can't yeah. go with it. So he's the and idiot a, nephew of Maurizio or of yep. Rodolfo. And that's the uh that's kind of the uh the family. And you get to you get to meet all of them and hijinks and lawsuits and all that good stuff ensues. And a fortune teller. Yes, and a fortune teller. I can't forget that. Yeah, it's it's all over the map. That's the problem with the House of Gucci. The concept is good because it seems like it's a Dateline episode and you could easily follow it like you could in a Dateline, but they take almost three hours to spill this crap out. And I think because they let some of those actors go wild, like there are moments with Jared Leto where you go, okay, we know what he is. We don't need another scene where he just is stupid and he gets it. I know like, people made fun of him for like the overacting and everything. And like, it's really insufferable how much he talks about how much he prepares for movies and everything. And he's also at best um, an absolute creep, but he, he was pretty, his character was pretty fun in the movie. I enjoyed him just being an absolute numbskull for but like every scene that he was in. <laughs> if you cut him out of the picture, it wouldn't ruin the picture. That's, that's fair. That is fair. I don't, well, it would, I would probably make it even it would make it way more humorless, I think. But other than that, I don't know how much you would lose if you cut him out. No, he's very colorful. And I do think he can be nominated for Best Supporting Actor because it's that kind of a showy role. But it isn't one that you say the story is going to fall apart if we don't have him in this. It doesn't. It's basically the revenge of a spurned wife. And she doesn't like the idea that her husband is picking up with other people when she's done so much for the House of Gucci. And Gaga, she knows how to do this stuff. She can take a mediocre script and really make it into something more than that. Because it did seem like it was on the level of The Godfather. When you look at some of the scenes, you go, this is filmed really well. And the colors are muted. And you think, yeah, I think they're, they're, it's more than just another kind of trash and flash film. But there is an appropriate amount of trash to it, right? It's just so stupid, some of this stuff. Like the whole thing with the, well, the, Salma Hayek plays this fortune teller that she sees on TV and she starts listening to her about green is your color and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And she buys into that more than she does listening to her own. Her gut is great. She should have listened to that because she wormed her way into that family, told them they were wasting their money because people were ripping them off right and left with the purses you know, the kind that you buy on the street corners in New York, she Back brought off, yeah. their attention and they were like, well, no, no, let it be. You know, we, we have those things. It's okay. It's all right. But she's kind of the watchdog of the family. But when they turn on her, she doesn't like that. And that's what it, the crux of it is. I will say, I, uh, I, I do agree. Cause I, I, I liked it quite a bit, but I do agree. Like it definitely could have uh, cut some stuff. The problem is I don't know where exactly, they would have cut and then as far as the the, the fortune teller thing goes i kind of appreciated that because it was just a, one of those nice little illustrations of like when a, a con artist or a scammer is getting scammed themselves and they can't really see it because like lady gaga's character is just holding on to every word that this just absolute fraud is telling her <laughs> you know i think uh, as much as jeremy irons is kind of fun 
he could have been a really a cameo. And then they didn't need to follow up on his character. You didn't need to see more of that. Same with Al Pacino. There are too many visits to his store in New York where anything is yours. Go ahead and just take it. Where I don't think I needed that. But I did want to see more about what transpires into the end. I wanted to know about, you know, where they are today and what's happening. Because apparently the family is upset with this film and they say it's all wrong and they've gone too far. Where would you put it in the spectrum of Ridley Scott films? It's not as focused as uh, the one he did last year with Christopher Plummer. All the money in the world? All the money in the world, yeah. That is a better look at that world. I was ready for it to be one of the best films of the year. It's not. It's definitely been pushed as that. And it seemed like it was going to be the perfect level of weird camp that he can certainly pull off. He's not a director who takes charge in this case. Uh, and you see how it isn't best directing because a best director would have been able to modulate all those actors who basically look like they're able to do what they want. Well, and uh, Bruce, Chris and I were actually talking about that a little bit before you got on that um, in some ways, um, Ridley Scott is a little bit like um, Steven Soderbergh sometimes where he can feel a little bit like a hired gun who's just going from one movie to the next. And people have had that complaint about him in the past. And I think that is a little bit fair sometimes because like none of his movies are like awful, but there's not always like a stamp there of like a, a director necessarily either. Yeah. You don't see the vision. Mm -hmm. It's I have handed the script and then I do what I need to do. It's, it's kind of like, if you will, latter-day um, Clint Eastwood, mm -hmm. where Clint that's just kind of comes in and does these things. And maybe that's just a part of the aging process, too, is that you think, oh, I'm not going to spend six years on this. I'm just, I know how to shoot it. I'm going to shoot it. We'll put it together. It'll be fine. So, but it's entertaining. I Didn't you think, Jared, it was an entertaining film? Oh, oh yeah. And there there was stuff I was definitely laughing uh, out loud during when I was singing at the theater with uh, my uh, my mom and my girlfriend, actually. And they they both enjoyed it to uh, varying degrees, too. I think my girlfriend a little bit less so than me and my mom probably about the same level as me or a little bit more. Um, and it was definitely getting some good laughs in the theaters, too. So, Yeah, it's it's OK. It's too bad that we're getting too many movies at once. If this had been released in June or July we'd be talking about it for weeks. COVID, you know, was kind of like holding the hose, you know, kind of crunched up. And now it's like, it's kind of been let go and we're just going to get hit with this deluge of projects that, that have been in, you know, that were filmed maybe three years ago in some cases. Like, like you were looking for licorice pizza. I heard so much about West Side Story this week that I thought, my God, I got to see this right away. Same. Did I need it? Probably not. As someone who has, you know, done entertainment coverage and things like that, uh, you know, embargoes stink. <laughs> but as someone who doesn't have access to things, I mean, I almost wish like, you know, reviewers would just say it's really good. And then <laughs> that's it. let it go. Yeah. Cause I mean, these are movies that I know I'm going to see. I know that I'm going to see West side story as soon as it opens. I know that I'm going to see licorice pizza as soon as it opens. And so all, all I'm being done, it's, I'm just being teased by all of this. And it's, 
like my my anticipation can't be elevated any higher than it and already at, is. We're at the holiday season when you're already too busy with things. I mean, I Netflix needs to stretch these suckers out if they're going to put them out there because January I could use a really good thoughtful movie. February I could use a thoughtful movie. March, April, maybe just go down the line instead of doing like five or six of them in November, December. Don't give it to us at another time of year because we can appreciate it. And I think they're just all, they all want those Oscar nominations. That's what they're going for. I mean, go for it. I mean, I feel like I'd much rather have an interesting kind of Oscar Beatty movie from them than another crappy, uh, you know, holiday knockoff thing. A Santa romance. But let's just say that um, House of Gucci would be in the B range, right, Jared? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Like it, it exactly a B, not a B plus or B minus, just exactly a B. I think. Um, one that um, we talked about a little bit the last time we all got together, but um, it, only Chris had seen it at that point, and it might be worth circling back to for just a second is uh, King Richard because I've seen it since then, and then Bruce, you have too, and. I, it feels really hard to not think that Will Smith is going to get one of those uh, nominations because he is so damn good in King Richard. You know, the one I want to see, though, is Ingenue Ellis. I want her to be nominated. And she is being mentioned. And it's good to see that because I think the mom is a real we've we've overlooked her in that story. And I don't think the movie does. And I think she she does a great job with that character. I, I'm all on Team Ingenue. Yep, I absolutely agree. I think Will Smith is the lock and it would almost be easier to not talk about him and just to talk about her because, you know, she needs, I think, the the extra heat to kind of keep her name in the conversation that's going to be dominated by him when the way that she so deftly, you know, was able to transition between, you know, being so supportive, but also being critical and, um, you know, loving and yeah, I mean, it was the nuance of that relationship and how it slowly was revealed all the layers there is, I mean, it's not flashy, but it's, it's so deep and it's so lived in and real. And when mom, this is maybe a spoiler, I don't know, but when they, they want Venus but Serena, they don't really care about it. And mom says, wait a minute. Now we're, I'm going to work with you. And mom takes Serena under, under her wing and look at Serena's career. She's, you know, the greatest. And what did mom do? And you see that you get to see the kinds of things that mom did that helped her become more than just a good tennis player. She became the best. And I, that's what, that's why I'm so high on that performance. And I hope, I hope it gets the kind of heat that it needs because it should be in there just as much as Will is, even though Will is like selling himself to get it. Yeah. And that's not, I mean, we mentioned it last time, but Will Smith is, I mean, that is one of his talents, you know, I mean, he's a, not just, you know, a triple threat, like the, there's a quadruple threat there of he's just so, Yeah. He knows exactly how to glad hand people and he's been around for so long and he's got all those connections and he's just, I don't know, just so ebullient. Next movie to talk about is one that I think is gonna fly under the radar of a lot of people and certainly is deserving of a more intense look. And that is The Humans 
which just came out recently. I think, I mean, I don't know what the theatrical run was, but it's streaming on Showtime of all places. Uh, it's the new screen adaptation of a play of the same name written by Stephen Karam, which opened on Broadway in 2016 after a short engagement the year before off Broadway, and then went on to win the Tony Award for Best Play in 2016. And it was also a finalist for the, the Pulitzer Prize in Drama. So this is, I mean, it comes with a pretty deep bench as far as pedigree goes. And it's- It's Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's set at Thanksgiving in an old, 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 old apartment in New York City. And the camera moves all over the place to catch the aging fixtures and the, the water damage on the ceiling and all the creaks and the clangs and the everything that's going on in this building, in this, the building and, and the apartment specifically. And uh, it adds this real haunted element to it uh, that is, I don't know, it just, it's, it's very loaded. And the family, the matriarch and the patriarch, you've got Richard Jenkins and um, Jane Howdy Shell. Howdy Shell, yeah. Mm-hmm. She was in the, in the show. Yeah, Jane Howdy Shell, who actually won the Tony that year for Best Featured Actress in a Play uh, with the role on there. And she's the only one that is coming from the play into the film. Uh, and the, the daughters are played by Amy Schumer and Beanie Feldstein. And Stephen Yun is Beanie Feldstein's boyfriend, long-term boyfriend. And the, the grandmother, who is kind of suffering from- Catatonic. Maybe late-stage dementia, almost. Um, and she's played by June Squibb. The whole thing is, it, it's a hangout movie in the weirdest way. I found myself relating to so much of the ways that they interact with each other because it's a very loving family, but there's clearly a lot of stuff that is has been suppressed over the years and a lot of stuff that is kind of coming out there. I mean, the way that they you know snipe at each other with this very passive aggressive tone sometimes is the kind of way that you you can only really get away with, with people that you have such a long-term, you know, intimate relationship with, uh, where there is that, you know, emotional connection. And, you know, you know, that there's a core of love underneath all of that. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's just fantastic. It takes about, it's, I think it's just under two hours long and it takes about an hour and 15 minutes to really get going but man, once it's cooking, it builds up a nice head of steam. Um, and Bruce, I know you saw it actually on Broadway, right? Yeah, and it was very intense. It was in a small theater and um, you felt like you were at this, you know, you think, oh, I'm, we're going over and we're gonna have Thanksgiving dinner. We should be fine, right? And all these things start coming out and dropped on the table. And you think, oh my God, I, di- I shouldn't have come to this this Thanksgiving dinner, it wasn't worth the turkey um, because it's a lot of angst. It's like when you say, oh, let's play a game. And then the game becomes much more than that, where somebody is gonna tip the Monopoly board at some point, they tip the Monopoly board with this. And it's like, you can't see where it's coming from, what the, who's the the, the person that's gonna push, push it over the edge because they all are suspect but boy, some of the stuff that comes out and at uh, on Broadway, they had the whole apartment and you saw the upper half too. 
And you, they would go up on the stairs and they'd be up in the second half. And then you'd hear these noises and you think, oh God, they have bad neighbors here. What's going on? What is this? And it's, it's so much more. Jared, you will love it because that you like that kind of horror aspect of things. But the horror is really in the family. You know, it's like, that's where the horror is. It's funny too. So you can't think that it's, it's going to be, you know, oh God. There's a lot of cliches, I guess, about, you know, family tensions coming to a boil in, you know, over the course of holidays. And I don't know. I mean, I've, I've certainly experienced conversations and meals with family that were not dissimilar to this, where, you know, not everyone at the table is necessarily, there's a certain letting down of the guard to where certain things that not everybody knows can maybe get blurted out. The tension that that creates, but also the fact that you know, or maybe you don't, I mean, I'm sure that there's, you know, things that have just caught on fire and, you know, torn families apart, maybe that have happened in this, but, you know, for the most part, every single one of these things, you just kind of, you end up driving home <laughs> at the end of the day and it's just, well, still family. <laughs> and there's a lot of that with this. If uh, they did like a Midwestern version of the same thing, instead of it being a slow boil, there would be some people that just started yelling at each other right away. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of August Osage County, if you remember that thing, with mm -hmm. this where it's like this, all this kind of undercurrent that families don't get out in the open. And I, I think as you get older, you just say, oh, enough. I'm just going to spill it out there. I don't care. And I don't know, I'm going to make a bit of a leap as far as the comparison, maybe partly because it's, these are both A24 movies, but Ghost Story, the Casey Affleck, Rudy Mara film from a few years ago. Uh, this is a lot more grounded than that, but it still has the same kind of fetishizing of the way that places develop character as they're lived in. And the way that they, you know, find just these specific resonant things to connect to. I'm certainly the kind of person who, you know, when you're driving through the country and you see some, you know, house that is rotting and ramshackle, my first thought is like, how many Christmases happened in that house? How many Thanksgivings happened there? Like what were, you know, was there love? Was there not love? Um, and this is very much a film that keys into that as an emotion, uh, as a kind of experience, I guess. But I would certainly advocate that people check this out. Maybe not with family. I don't know if it's necessarily going to dredge up anything. <laughs> that's you, right? Can't you just see you're telling somebody that goes with you? That, that's just like you. You're just like that. And it's you see that you first judge the people. And you say, oh, that's that, that's that one. And then you realize some of these people are you. And that's kind of fascinating. But yeah, it's a, it's a great film, I, I, I'm assuming now. But the storyline is such to me that it would be a great one for discussion like that. Yeah, and I will be really interested whenever we get around to talking about it uh, next time that we see each other to hear your take, Bruce, having seen the play, because the, the way, I mean, it's, it's in an actual apartment. I don't know how much of it was a set that was built, how much of it was actually shot, you know, in an apartment or whatever, but there are a lot of 
cutaways and, you know, it's staged in a really interesting way where, you know, the camera can kind of like, you know, go down and like shift between floors and, you know, focusing on one person in one room while you still hear all of the chatter going on in the other room. It feels exactly like, you know, a, a long evening spent with family where, you know, maybe somebody has a little too much to drink and all of the, the insecurities are there. And again, the, the intimacy of it being family and the comfort of being able to kind of let your guard down about some of that stuff because everyone, anyway, so yeah, going from one fraught family holiday movie to maybe some other ones. Let's do a quick roundup of our staff picks for Desert Island Christmas movies. I've got a prediction of what Jared's going to pick, but he might surprise me. So let's throw Jared in the mix first. I want to hear what your, uh, your prediction is, and then I can confirm or deny. My prediction was Home Alone. No. Even though um, Home Alone 2 is my favorite Christmas movie, if, it, if we're doing Desert Island here where it's one we got to watch over and over again, something I recently rewatched I think is a better candidate for such a uh for such parameters and that's a uh, bad santa man i uh got that on uh blu-ray watched the uh the director's cut which is way less of a uh hollywood like upbeat kind of thing a lot of the buddy aspects of like the the version i've watched for years are kind of sucked out of the uh director's cut and i re-watching that it just reminded me of how much i love that movie i really appreciate how mean-spirited it is and I was thinking, too, that anyone could have done a movie like that where you just have like this, well, you know, bad Santa who's like swearing and drinking and boozing and stuff. But the way that like Terry Zweigoff heightens that contradiction is really what makes the movie as good as it is. And I think a lot of less talented directors would not have been so good at like heightening that particular contradiction. And it's what makes the movie so fantastic. And of course, Billy Bob too, but um, this time around when I watched it, Tony Cox, I think was by far and away my MVP. Just like the stuff he gets to say in that movie throughout is just fantastic. So Bad Santa has to be my Desert Island pick. Rest in peace to Bernie Mac as always. Yeah, I don't, Bad Santa too isn't as bad as you think. Let's not oversell this, Bruce. <laughs> no, I, because you know, you think, oh, this is a money grab. We're just going to go back to the same well. We're going to do the same thing. But they do have some new stuff in there that I, I appreciate it. But I do. I love Bad Santa. I love Bad Santa. And, you know, that where they tried to pull that other crap with, um, was it Fred Claus with Vince Vaughn, where it was like trying to play off that, but they didn't want to go as far as, as Bad Santa did. And Bad Santa, come on, go there. Visit it. Own it. How about you, Bruce? People are mad because it's on all the time, but I really love Christmas Story. And it's because it does have that kind of evilness in it where, you know, they go to see Santa Claus and you, you can just see the kind of, oh my God, this crazy kid is in front of me and I've got to be behind this crazy kid. And this kid wants to talk when they're in the line to Santa Claus. And then the kid is so like hyped up to get up to Santa Claus and Santa's mean. And then Santa pushes his boot right in your face. I love that. That is like perfect. <laughs> That's my idea of a Christmas movie. 
I I enjoy every little minute of those things that are very subversive. And I, you know, people have never been able to kind of equal that. You can go back and there are, you watch those parts, you know, as you kind of flow through the channels and it shows up at some point, you see, oh, this is the part where he gets his tongue stuck on the pole. Oh, this is the part where he has to eat the soap. Oh, this is the part where they have to wear the rabbit suit. You know, all those things are such classic moments that I think I could watch it over and over again and even be reminded of where I was when I first saw that. That movie is like the Christmas version of uh, Goodfellas. Like when Goodfellas is on TV, you'll just stop on it and wait for whatever like iconic scene is up next. That, that definitely is the Christmas version of that with like some of those scenes that you just laid out, Bruce. Right, though, isn't that one that you wouldn't mind seeing again because it does conjure things for you? And so if I had to have only one, I wouldn't pick like something that's, oh God, not that stupid, it's a wonderful life. This is a very uh, uh, misanthropic uh, Christmas picks so far. Yeah, <laughs> so we're counting on Chris to save us. Chris has got to bring us home. It's not going to happen. Going between like best and favorite to one that I would want to rewatch over and over again, I've got like a short list and I think I'm gonna have to go with Edward Scissorhands. I've seen it enough to love it, but I haven't seen it enough to where there aren't little bits that I could probably still pick out. And it's also, I mean, it's peak Tim Burton. And you would classify that as Christmas. It's got enough Christmas to it. Why did you abandon Home Alone? You asking me or Jared? Either of you, because I thought we'd have a Home Alone here somewhere. It's my favorite, um... Christmas movie but again if we're doing Desert Island where it's something you're going to watch all year I don't know if I would be able to to endure that or not I like having Home Alone just neatly cordoned off in uh in its time of year what about then National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation that's a I think that's a similar thing where that's also just I like Bat Santa I could absolutely watch in July or like you know the middle of like March or something and have a good time with it but Christmas Vacation I think I would yeah no Wow. See, I, I can turn it on and then I go, oh, look, they got the moose glasses. I want that. Yeah. There are little things like that that kind of trigger. There's so many other great movies that are in that mix for me. I mean, like, I know I went with Edward Scissorhands, a little bit of a left field type thing, but I mean, Trading Places and Gremlins are both like right there on my list as well. What about Nightmare Before Christmas? I like Nightmare Before Christmas. But yeah, I don't know if I'd make that my desert island. Okay. Whereas Edward Scissorhands, the groove hasn't been run that deep into my brain with Edward Scissorhands. And I don't know. I mean, do you feel like it's cheating to have that as a, like, like it's not a Christmas movie? No, 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 that's fine. Okay. It's just off. It's really off base, right? Well, I mean, you can't steal second if you're not off base. So that's right. You're correct, sir. <laughs> It'd be like me, it'd like me saying, I really like Summer Place as my favorite go-to Christmas movie. Summer Place? What are you thinking? Right? So yeah, so now we're going to lead into, I'm going to wrap up and kind of throw to an interview that Bruce recently did with Piper Perabo. Yeah, and if you may remember, she was in Coyote Ugly. That was her first big kind of push. She's been in other films since then, but she had the biggest kind of uh, launch with that film and where she's dancing on the bar and all this. And even today, people talk to her about that. But now 
she's in two series. She's in The Big Leap, and then she's also on Yellowstone. And Yellowstone is like the phenomenon of television because a whole network was built up just to kind of show those kind of uh, episodes. But she's new into Yellowstone. She plays a woman who is a, an environmentalist who is protesting some stuff that's going on around the Dutton Ranch. And she happens to meet Kevin Costner in a bizarre way. And there could be something more there. We got a chance to talk about all that kind of stuff, all rolled into one. So um, you'll be able to, to see what it was like for her. Bruce is uh, slowly uh, interviewing everyone from the cast of Yellowstone, it seems like. I, I'm going to be the Yellowstone king who doesn't watch Yellowstone on a regular basis. I am not into it, and I find that it's very profane. But it's um, Taylor Sheridan, former actor, who really has been making a name for himself in, in Hollywood with some of those independent films that just really clicked. And then he got um, Yellowstone kind of really, they didn't think it was going to be this successful. It's basically Dallas is what it is uh, with four letter words. And um, in fact, Kevin, I think, wanted out earlier than he's been able to get out. He also has uh, the mayor of Easttown, which is another one that's very kind of dark and similar. Well, it's him and Jeremy Renner. Yes. Who they first worked together doing Wind River, which... I think is on Netflix right now. I think you can watch Wind River on Netflix, which is um, a pretty intense action movie about, you know, a native reservation. And that's worth checking out. Mayor of Kingstown, I should say, not Easttown. Easttown, sorry. I think, you know what, I, I get fix, uh, mixed up with Mayor of Easttown and Mayor of Kingstown. You're not the first. Yeah, it's like, really, this was a plot by somebody to make sure that we... We screwed the titles up of these things. He also had the one where it was Chris Pine. Hell or High Water, which was also great. And then, of course, earlier this year, he did uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead, which was, we talked about it, it was solid, but not quite as good as uh, Wind River or Hell or High Water, which he wrote the script for, or, of course, Zakaria, which he also wrote the script for. But so he's, he's getting a lot of heat. And he also is doing the prequel to Yellowstone. And that'll have Faith Hill and, and Tim McGraw in it. So we'll see what happens. My take on Yellowstone, the first two seasons, I didn't hear anything about. And then at some point, people were like, you know, this is the most watched TV show in America right now. And I feel like most people haven't heard of it. <laughs> Somehow it's just like crushing. It really speaks to how just fragmented like pop culture is at this point that you could have something that is that big. And like, I haven't seen an episode of it. I could ask a lot of people about it and they wouldn't know anything about it necessarily or if they've seen a single episode. And that's just kind of where we're at now. Or like, you can have these things that are huge with wherever their audience is. And then like, you know, you go a mile down the road and nobody even knows what the hell it is. It's fascinating to watch, but it isn't one of those ones that I would say I'm glued to it. I've got to see this. Because I get it. I understand what the plot is all about and I see where they're going with it. But if you're not Beth Dutton, you don't really have a great line. You usually have just a four letter word to respond with. So yeah, Bruce is going to talk to Piper Parabo about all this stuff and stick around. You'll hear that audio shortly. But for now, thank you, Bruce and Jared. Have those guys back next week. 
we've got too much to see. It's like the kid with all the presents. I, I'm like Ralphie. I've got all the presents around me at the on Christmas Day, and I'm just tearing through the paper trying to get to all of them because everyone is great. And then I toss it aside. And then I got another one. And I tear through that one and I toss that one aside. And you keep opening presents. And that's what this time of year is all about. It's like we have too many great choices to really ignore. All right. Well, here is the interview that Bruce did with Piper Parabo. Piper, tell me, how do you do two series in one year? What is that all about? It was a busy year, Bruce. I couldn't sit in my house any longer. And so <laughs> luckily I got some work and got out there and got to work. Were you doing both shows at one time at any point or not? I was learning dance for The Big Leap while I was still filming Yellowstone. So I would go home to this little ranch house we had when I filmed Yellowstone and take my computer out on the porch and do my Zoom dance lessons on the porch when I would get home from filming Yellowstone. Well, then with Yellowstone, you are a, an activist, I guess is the best way to, to describe yeah. her. How did that mesh with your own life? Because you've done those things as well. Yeah, um, I, ha I have really gotten involved in, in activism and I had been um, arrested for civil disobedience, protesting a nominee to the Supreme Court. And not long after that, I had dinner with Taylor Sheridan, who created Yellowstone, and it came up at dinner. And he was really interested in it. He wanted to know, this is the great part about Taylor, is that he gets a kind of idea about something, and then he just wants to like dig into it more and more. He wanted to know every detail about how does that work, and how many people get arrested, and what's the process. And so about six months after I told him the story, I got this character and this script on Yellowstone. Did she seem like you? She doesn't really. There, you know, environmental activism isn't really the the primary thing that I work that I have been fighting for. Sure. Um, I'm more into like civil rights and voting rights, but um, it was really fun to have two passions kind of overlap like that in a way I keep the activism and the acting sort of separate so to try and blend them together it was a cool challenge well had you been a big fan of Yellowstone so you said oh yeah I want in I mean huge fan I've been watching since the pilot I've been watching Taylor Sheridan's writing from when I saw Heller High Water and Sicario and when I, I look at all his stuff and so I was like watching Yellowstone from the beginning and then did you say, oh, I think I should be paired with Kevin Costner. This would be a good. Well, yeah, like you can really tell Taylor Sheridan what to write. Right. He's going to whatever, whatever the hell he wants. But I mean, I was kind of intimidated to do scenes with Kevin. He's such a movie star, not the way he behaves, but, you know, my perception of him. And when you see him walk onto a set, it's he's a real classic American movie star. And so it's kind of intimidating that first scene, that first day, but Kevin is so professional, so kind of down to earth and serious and has directed so many films himself. So the, the nerves go away pretty quickly. And you so how does he, do, how does he put you at ease? Because I would think, oh my God, it's still, it's Kevin. I know. Well, acting is a thing that you really, when you're doing a scene with someone your focus, your concentration is really on the other person. And so I really have to be focused on 
John Dutton and what's going on in the scene. And so pretty quickly, all that nerves about Kevin and Dances with Wolves and everything kind of is in the background. Dancing theme. Do you notice that coming through? Yeah. It is. Yeah, it's I there. Know. It's there. But Beth is the one I think I'd be most, most worried about because she seems like just trouble with a capital T. I know. If I could have given Summer some advice, I would have told her to watch out for Beth. But I think Summer goes into this a little blind and John is such a big boss. You think he's going to be the only boss in the family. So you don't notice Beth sitting right there in the shadow. Yeah, she's... She's, I, I would assume it'd be the, the role you'd really want. You'd want to be her because she's like killer. She's killer. And I saw her in a Pinter play on Broadway um, a few years before Yellowstone. So I'd seen her work in real life and knew how good she was. And then I was a fan of the show. So I know I'm coming up against this real powerhouse of an actress but that's what makes it fun sure when you look at this now do you know where your character goes or are you kept in the in the dark as much as everybody else I knew where my character goes this season I knew the arc of summer for season four but that's all I know do you like speculate are you sitting around on the set and going I think this should happen I think that would be a good thing to do or is it like (laughs) don't even think about it I mean, Kelly Riley, who plays Beth, always has a lot of opinions about what should happen next. And so when she and I are sitting around the set, she would offer up ideas. And so then I would start to chime in. But uh, I don't know how much power I have to change Taylor Sheridan's mind. It could happen. It could ha- you never know. How weird is it being on a hit show like this? I mean, this isn't just a regular hit. It's a hit. I know, and I was kind of nervous because usually Yellowstone is on in the summer. And this year, they the fans had to wait until fall for it to come out. And I, you know, it's on Sunday nights with the football and everything. And I thought like, is that gonna mess everything up? But it didn't mess anything up. <laughs> is it weird that I'm, I'm assuming now you'll get people recognizing you from this show when, the, when your episodes really start heating up? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it'll be. I actually, I have like a beanie, like a little stocking cap that has like a Yellowstone Y on it that one of the guys on the crew gave me and I wear it, you know, I live in New York city. And so I wear it around New York city. And one lady, I was um, at the Christmas tree stand around the corner from us. And one lady came to me. She's like, where'd you get your hat? And I was like, here it comes. comes." I'm on the set. I got it on the set. Thank you you so much. Well, you had a huge, huge hit like this with Coyote Ugly, too. And how do you, well, how, what is that like? And how do you deal with those things? I mean, it's sort of weird. I think that people recognize, I don't, usually I don't, for whatever reason, like when someone recognizes you, I assume I should recognize them. You know, like when someone says like, oh, Piper, I think like, okay, I'm not recognizing them because- <laughs> Like maybe went to high school together. Like I'm just racking my brain trying to figure out how I know them. So it usually, then they'll say like, I love you on Yellowstone or I love you on whatever. And then I sort of put it all together. Um, I don't know. It depends on the part, you know, if the people like the character, they're real positive. If they don't like the character, then they want to sort of get into it with you. But New York City, people are so used to seeing um, actors walking around that, you know, you no see big the deal. yeah, they act so no big deal. Was it good having that kind of success so early in your career? 
Is it one of those things where you say, I get this out of the way, I understand what it's about, so then I can just move on and do the work? Sort of. I mean, I wasn't really ready for it with Coyote Ugly, and I was really lucky that I had family and friends that sort of loved me no matter what. So when it got a little confusing, I had a sort of foundation underneath me. And now I've been in the business a long time, and there's a lot of you know, I have friends who are actors, both way more famous than me. And then also just like, you know, your work a day actor. So I can kind of see it in a bigger, in a bigger picture. What's exciting to me is the work. So if, if the success of Yellowstone gets me more interesting work, that's the most exciting part for me. Last question. How good are you on like a horse or any of that stuff? I'm good. Are you good? Print that. Okay. So that, so that Taylor's (laughs) positive of it. Oh, good. Because, you know, you go and go, oh, God, this is like the worst place for me to be. I can't do this. No, so. I can ride Western English side saddle. Let's go. All right. We're on it. Well, Piper, thank you so much. And thank you. great good luck with those people, because those Duttons, they're a force to be reckoned with. Can I tell I you? It's going to be trouble. I've, I'm going to have to hold on. Hold on with both hands. My goal is that you get in there and you just tell them all what to do. Well, but, wish me well, luck, because I don't well, know if you can tell the nuts what to do. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Anyway, okay. thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's the end of the episode. Next week, which looks like it could be pretty overwhelming, we're going to be talking about West Side Story. Don't look up being the Ricardos and Red Rocket. You can check the show notes for links to where you'll be able to stream the movies that we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by Bruce and Jared and me, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope that you've enjoyed the show and are taking good care of yourselves out there. As always, thank you so much for listening. I think of bullion cubes whenever I say the word bullion, which... Not like I say the word a bullion the whole lot, but anyway.